welcome to the Health Leaders Women in Healthcare Leadership Podcast. I'm Melanie Blackman, Strategy Editor for Health Leaders. My guest today is Dr. Haley Fisher-Wright, Business Consultant, Physician Leader, and President and CEO of Medical Group Management Association. She is also co-author of Tribal Leadership, a New York Times bestseller, and author of Back to Balance, The Art, Science, and Business of Medicine. Haley, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Melanie. I appreciate the invitation. Before joining MGMA in 2015, Haley served as Chief Medical Officer for Centura Health's St. Anthony's North Medical Center in Colorado. And prior to that, she served as lead physician and then president of Rose Medical Group in Denver. So that actually leads me to my first question. How would you describe your leadership style and how has your background as a physician impacted your style? It's a great question because I think it really shows that people's leadership styles don't traditionally stay in one domain. So when I first started as a physician leader, I would describe my style as autocratic. And I honestly think that's how, as physicians, we're often mentored because we're taught that we're leaders, but we're not really taught about leadership, if you will. And so from that standpoint, you're tasked with making decisions right off the bat. And so from that standpoint, I think you start out as effectively an autocrat. Then as my career path had moved me into leadership positions, I think my natural gravitation was towards more of a transformational style. In other words, I was kind of interested in the new shiny object, you know, that's ahead of me. And I was always thinking about the future. I wanted to change everything. And so for the people that work for me was, that's great. Thank you very much, but let's move forward. And so I was always moving, if you will, using metaphor, I was always moving the goal line farther and farther ahead. And I think for people that work with you, that can be a real challenge. In one sense, it's very sexy, but on the other hand, it's really challenging. Where I want to be as I head into the middle part of my career, where I really want to be is more of a coach style. And I see that I'm kind of making that transition between transformation and coach style. What I mean by that is identifying the really unique traits in my staff and giving them the opportunities to express their strengths in a way that benefits the enterprise. I think that's a win for our employees. It's also a win for the enterprise. So that's my goal for my future as I kind of transition out of transformational into that, which is where I am right now, kind of a foot in both those camps. Health organizations are making the difficult decision on whether to mandate vaccinations for the workforce. What advice do you have for those leaders on making this decision? I think it's very clear if you take a look, almost all the medical societies and clinical entities have suggested and signed up together on a, on a note to mandate vaccines for a clinical setting. And you know, the challenge that I always have to acknowledge is because I am a traditionally trained physician, I am incredibly biased for the vaccine. And so for our clinical settings, I am in alignment for mandatory vaccination in, in people delivering clinical care. I'll also say on the other side of my mouth, my organization is an administrative organization. We've really struggled with the decision, should we mandate vaccination or not? 10% of my staff have not received vaccines. 
uh, and not for reasonable medical uh, reasons. They're not immunocompromised, pregnant, et cetera. But one of the things, and I think we'll talk about it uh, a little bit later, Melanie, is we're faced with the, the economic reality of if we mandate our vaccine, then we may lose staff members that in our current employment climate, we may not be able to really deliver our product, fill those positions, uh, just because the employment market has flipped and it's definitely an employee market where we are located. People have left jobs and they're not coming back to the workforce. So it's not this kind of circulation that we traditionally see. What I recommend is really, if you're in a clinical facility delivering clinical care, I do think it's the responsible thing to do to mandate vaccination. And if you're in an administrative facility, I think you have to decide what are the pros and the cons, and ultimately, what is the right thing to do. Well, and that is a great segue to the next question, which is prior to the pandemic, healthcare workers were feeling burnt out and healthcare organizations were facing nursing shortages. And this, of course, has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. So what advice do you have for hospitals and health systems who are facing decreased staffing levels and increased burnout? Absolutely. So one thing that I'm talking about quite a bit in media interviews is there's no trend that we're seeing now at this phase of COVID, because I don't think that COVID's over, that we didn't see before COVID hit the world. What we have seen, though, is an increase in the velocity of those trends. And certainly burnout is one of them. When we talk about burnout, uh, certainly one of the things that my organization focuses on in a burnout situation is often when you do a deep dive into burnout, it's because people are, besides being overworked and working too many hours, you take a look at the jobs that people are doing and how much of that job is not meaningful or for that matter is either redundant or unnecessary. So I think for hospitals and health systems who are facing this, my recommendation is to really step back, reevaluate the workflow. What part of that job doesn't need to be done? In other words, it's kind of because we're such a heavily regulated, safety-oriented industry, a lot of times we get kind of initiative on initiative and we're not taking off initiative. So can we streamline what are inherent redundancies and inefficiencies? That's number one. Number two, what part of those jobs can be reallocated into a technological solution that decreases the work for the healthcare provider? And, and I know every physician who may listen to this is going to say, let me talk to you about your electronic health record that increased my workflow. I agree. And there are ways to implement technological solutions that are focused on end user satisfaction, which is not the traditional history of the electronic health records. And so those are the things that, that I put in there. And, and I just think we have to do a couple things. Number one, I really acknowledge that the length and intensity of the pandemic in, in the United States has been exhausting and traumatic for healthcare professionals. And whereas, we were talking about this this morning, whereas a year ago we were doing the 8 p.m. HAL, we're, we're not really talking about how healthcare professionals are heroes today, although I would argue that it's 
even more heroic to go into work today than it was a year ago because of all the uncertainty and the ambivalence about being 18 months into this virus. I think the mental health issues, not just for the physicians, the nurses, and the therapists in our industry is an issue, but I think mental health is going to be the number one health crisis in our country probably over the next decade. And then a lot of times when we talk about burnout in healthcare, we talk about lifestyle. This is far more than lifestyle. We need to talk about really how our expectations of our healthcare providers, which haven't dramatically changed since the 1970s, are out of alignment in a 2020 to 2030 world. And how do we build those systems that true those alignments so that we don't burn out our staff? We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, I'm Alexandra Pecci, Revenue Cycle Editor at Health Leaders. Don't miss the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle podcast, which drops the second Tuesday of every month. You'll get to hear Revenue Cycle executives sharing their innovative ideas and proven strategies for tackling big issues like price transparency, denials management, surprise billing, artificial intelligence, and so much more. Subscribe and listen to the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. What originally drew you into working in the healthcare sector? <laughs> okay, we have we probably don't have enough time on this podcast, but the short version is I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. Neither one of my parents had gone to college. Uh, there weren't any physicians in my family. So for me, when I was a child, I was curious. I loved science. And what I saw for a physician, uh, my pediatrician, who is incredibly well-respected, I loved how he was a part of the family, even though he wasn't part of our family. I loved that when my mom was worried about our health, he was the person who comforted her. I loved that he was the smartest man in the room. And growing up in a family that um, was kind of lower middle class, we had our financial challenges when I was growing up. I love the fact that, you know, just to be pragmatist, that I could see a profession where I wouldn't necessarily have to worry about, will the mortgage get paid? Will we be able to buy food? Can I, you know, clothe my kids and things like that? So I think all those shaped my perception, but more than anything, I would say that my pediatrician was my role model. And I would even tell you that when I was in medical school, I did a rotation with my pediatrician, so this is 20-some years later, and the really cool thing was he was still the smartest guy in the room. I was a molecular biology major uh, when I was in college, and so while I was there, he asked to see my textbooks from when I was in college, and then I came back the next day, and he started asking me questions, and I'm embarrassed and proud to say this, proud because he asked the questions, embarrassed because I couldn't answer. He asked me all these questions and I said, well, we didn't get to that part of the book when I was in college. So just the respect that I have for someone that was so committed to lifelong learning was another thing that, that really impressed me when I was a kid. Yeah, that definitely makes a difference. Yes. What has been your experience working as a woman physician leader and CEO? It's been a challenge. I'll be honest with you. It's a challenge because 
at the highest echelons of healthcare up until about five years ago, it was very much a, even for my colleagues that are female physicians, um, it was very much if you were um, a woman at a meeting, the assumption was either you were a nursing leader or you were um, an assistant to one of the physicians that were present. There's a meeting that I attended my first year as CEO of MGMA, where I, and I'm significantly younger than a lot of my colleagues, where I attended the meeting and two of the other attendees at this very prestigious meeting had asked me to go get them coffee because they assumed I was someone's assistant. And that wasn't unusual. Does it upset me? No. I always thought it was interesting that someone that had been done practicing medicine 20 years ago was now determining the future of healthcare. I always thought that that was ironic. But as a CEO, I am convinced, uh, I was convinced of this as a business consultant and now as a CEO, I do think, and we're seeing it play out in COVID, that women bring a unique set of assets to the role of being a CEO. And very much, I think the 1980s, 1990s version of CEO is kind of the powerful, take charge, no holds barred. I think we all have come to understand that a little more emotional intelligence equals a lot more success in the enterprise. And so I think that's where women can really show up. They can hold the business responsibility, the enterprise responsibility in one hand. And I think that women have perhaps a little more experience with emotional intelligence than, than some men do. If you take a look at efficacy of leadership, the statistics and world leaders navigating COVID, which came out kind of the first six months, showed that the leadership of countries who had women as leaders were doing much better. So for that standpoint, I think there's a lot to contribute. One of the things that I often speak about, though, is we still are not paid the same. We still are, women are not present in the same percentage as men, and we're not compensated the same. My husband is a physician, and I remember that my first really high executive level position, we were negotiating my salary. The salary band was very clear. There was no transparency in salary at this point in time like there is now. And so I basically said, this is what this job pays, and this is my expectation. And she said, well, you don't need that much money. Your husband's a physician. And so we're still navigating some of that. Um, and a lot of times when I speak to women executives, I basically, one of the things I talk about is being paid for the work you do and not accepting anything less. And I think as more and more women become leaders, become CEOs, and hit the higher levels of leadership ranks. I think some of that will dissolve, but I also think that we probably have a generation or two to overcome that. Well, in continuing on that, what other advice do you have for women and others who want to serve in leadership roles in the healthcare sector? I think it's crucial that women participate in leadership roles in the healthcare sector. I think it's crucial because we are going to have to redefine what healthcare is post-COVID. Where is that care going to be delivered? Our traditional models of admitting patients to the hospital and taking care of patients in a practice are probably going to shift over the next decade to 20 years. So I think the creativity, the innovation, the emotional intelligence, and the leadership that women can bring to that conversation are 
crucial for us to be successful in navigating those transitions. So I encourage any woman who is willing to pick up the mantle of leadership, I heartily encourage them. The one piece of advice that I have given even women in my own organization is there is something to learn from men, and that is do not assume that you're going to be automatically recognized for the work you do. You do have a personal brand, and you do have to promote your personal brand. I talked about it in the compensation part of our conversation. If you know that you're being paid less, Never accept that is my advice because there's been a lot of research done on why women accept less in compensation and what happens to them over the long haul. And my advice for any woman leader who is leading teams is how can you be effective leading teams if you can't lead yourself in that domain? And one of that is every human being on the world wants to be paid fairly. So make sure you're paid fairly before you take up a leadership role. That's great advice. Well, Haley, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your expertise. Thank you, Melanie. I appreciate the invitation again. Absolutely. And thank you listeners for joining us on the Health Leaders Women in Healthcare Leadership podcast. Until next time, keep taking care of your patients and each other. 